0: A vindictive Congress attempted to impeach and convict the president yet again, this time for the events of 6 January, and even after he had become a private citizen. The effort failed, and rightly so. I,
1: interrupt you, sir, I don't mean to interrupt you, sir, but uh, the, the president has formally been impeached in the House of Representatives. A deeply divided votes. moment
0: playing out in American history as we come on the air. President Trump has just been impeached on both Article One, Abuse of Power, and on Article Two, Obstruction of Congress. The votes down party lines. I was in President Trump's proximity that entire day. I can say categorically that he never intended there to be violence, that he did not attempt to incite violence. Donald John Trump, President of the United States, is not guilty as charged in the first article of impeachment. On the second article of
1: impeachment, obstruction of Congress, the vote is 47 guilty, 53 not guilty. What we saw during the Senate trial confirmed what we've known for months impeachment wasn't about the Constitution. It wasn't about abuse of power. It was about
0: the Democrats and the fact that they hate this president. The president was playing his last and legitimate constitutional card. The president was true to form, a fighter to the end. You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army.
1: Welcome to the Code Red podcast. I am Alan Roth, President of Secure America Now. We are privileged to have as our guest today, General Keith Kellogg. After a distinguished career as an Army Ranger, General Kellogg has served as National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump and Vice President Mike Pence. General Kellogg's memoir, War by Other Means has just been published. And yesterday, the 45th President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, Go Get War by the Means by General Keith Kellogg. It's a really good read. Well, I want to commend President Trump once again for getting it right.
0: This book is just Fantastic. It was a fortunate end to our administration, but also an unhappy warning about what would follow. A new administration that would allow an objectively rattling leftist agenda and immediately seek to obliterate nearly everything we had achieved.
1: From the beginning of his career in Vietnam as an Army Ranger to his battles within the bureaucracies of Washington, D.C., Keith Kellogg has done a phenomenal job serving his
0: country. Uh, A vindictive Congress attempted to impeach and convict the president yet again, this time for the events of 6 January, and even after he had become a private citizen. The effort failed, and rightly so. I was in President Trump's proximity that entire day. I can say categorically that he never intended there to be violence that he did not attempt to incite violence, and that none of us, given our previous experience of Trump rallies, ever envisioned a riot that would follow the president's remarks. The president was playing his last and legitimate constitutional card. The president was true to form, the fighter to the end. But the idea that a crowd that became a mob, that broke into the Capitol and then wandered around the halls amounted to an insurrection, was ludicrous. It was a mob gone bad but in an insurrection, it was not. You talk about your
1: early career, how you got involved in the Rangers and serving your country. And it seems like your experiences from Vietnam through the Middle East, through the Pentagon, prepared you to do the bare knuckle fighting that you ended up doing inside the Trump administration both working for President Trump and for Vice President Pence. Do you feel that you are well-schooled in combat to do the Washington type of combat from the combat you did in the field?
0: Well, it's, it's funny, there's two parts to that. One, there's the physical part, which is the battling part when you're on the ground. The second is the mental part. And I think all, all my experience in the military did prepare me for it because I think there's translational skills that you can use from the military to the diplomatic world and the political world. And I found those, but I also believe deeply in America. And when I I was in the military and the reason I joined the military was, I I deeply believe in this nation and and what this nation stood for and how it got to where it's at. And I found that in Donald J. Trump as well. And it it forces you to say, okay, you're gonna have to battle against some entrenched interests in here. They don't see the world as you see it. And I knew that. And I told the president that as well in 2015 and 16, that he was going to have a lot of people out there pushing back on him. And I said, trust your instincts. I said, one thing I learned in the military was instincts really do play a huge part. And that's because of all the training and experiences that you have. They prepare you for the future. And, And his instincts were incredible. They were wicked, wicked good. And he did that because all the time he spent in the business world. And so there was a parallel how I grew up in the military and the lessons learned and when he grew up in the business world. Here's the difference, Alan. You've got a president right now who's never been in the business world. All he's been for almost 50 years has been in the political world. And that's a different lens to look through. Donald J. Trump came up through the business world. He had good deals. He had some bad deals. He had good times. He had some hard times. And he wrote about that. And he wrote The Art of the Deal and Crippled America. And in the books that he wrote, he kind of said, this is what's happened to me, both the good and the bad, and prepared him for the future. And just like the military prepared me for the future, the business world prepared him for the future. I think we were able to combine that because we both had shared interests, one being in America, but two, we both believed in instinctive ways of, of making decisions in which I used to tell him, you know, Mr. President, you're wicked smart. People do not believe how good your decisions are because they can't believe you're making them as quickly as you're making them and how good you're making them. But I said, I just kept telling him, Mr. President, trust your instincts. They're spot on for America. President Trump achieved a lot for America. And what were those achievements for starters? We defeated the largest terrorist caliphate in the world, ISIS. We killed its terrorist leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. We eliminated the foremost terrorist in the world, Qasem Soleimani. We wound down the Afghan war and asked the new administration a workable plan to finally America and America's longest war. Through the Abraham Accords, we greatly improved the prospects for peace in the Middle East, lessened Arab Israeli tensions, and organized a de facto Arab Israeli alliance against Iran. In support of Israel, we directed the move of our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, 23 years after the passage of the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995. You're a straight shooter. You
1: love your country. You love your family. I think at one point in the book, your wife tells you, Yeah, take that job. <laughs> yeah. um, she wasn't letting you off the hook in terms of serving your country. And the reluctance you showed about the ability to what I would call impose America's will in the Middle East, here with Afghanistan and Iraq. One of the points that you make is that. When we went into Iraq, after we got rid of Saddam Hussein, we could have used a Lucius Clay or a Douglas MacArthur, but we didn't have one. What did you mean? Yeah,
0: what I did, when when we won, when we basically won the military battle, I was the chief operating officer, and I was put there to be his ops guy by Secretary Rumsfeld because he was a little bit frustrated with what Jerry Bremer was doing. And I said, we've got this all wrong, Mr. Winsfeld. He said, what are you talking about? I said, look, you put a guy in charge of, a, of rebuilding Iraq that the very first thing he did was he eliminated the Iraqi military. I said, all you did was create a, an insurgency by sending all these people home with their weapons. And then the second order he put out was he eliminated anybody who to be in government who was members of the Ba'ath Party, the Iraq Ba'ath Party. I said, look. You know, Secretary Roosevelt. Even teachers had to be part of the bath party. I said, so we were two strikes before we even start. What I meant when I said that was, we did something really smart at the end of World War II. In Germany, after we conquered it, we put Lucius Clay in charge of it. He was re, he was a general officer, a military officer who understand both political and military, because he'd be, been part of the effort to defeat the Nazi Germany, and he could resurrect Germany, bring it back because he understood both the military and the political piece at the same time, and he understood command structure and understood everything that it took to get a country put back on its feet. We did the same thing with Japan. We put Douglas MacArthur in charge, also a 4 star general, and let him do the reconstruction of Japan. And he actually, he even rewrote the Japanese concept and said, this is how you're gonna follow it. So we took known people who had been in combat, who knew the political and the military side in both Germany and Japan, and said, you guys bring these countries back up to a level, with we'll start their functioning again. We didn't do that in Iraq. We took a career politician, somebody who the largest job he'd ever had, uh, was being uh, involved with the embassy in the Netherlands and put him in charge of rebuilding Iraq. And he got it wrong with his first two general orders. And Jerry and I used to go around and around about this. And I'd keep telling him, you can't go there, You can't do this. I never dispute Jim Bremer's personal courage. He had tremendous personal courage. I always questioned his his management style and his leadership. And because of that, we created another insurgency that we are still living with to this day with the problems we're having in Iraq because we didn't solve it the way we should have solved it.
1: As you know, we recently had the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which you had worked up a plan, which I'm sure would have been far more successful than what the Biden administration did um, in terms of extracting America from Afghanistan, but I would like you to talk about the criticism or the debate that has been taking place as to whether or not America should have left Afghanistan. You thought that was the right policy. Can you tell us why?
0: Yeah. The reason I did that, and by the way, if they had followed the plan that we gave them, or if Donald Trump was still there, Afghanistan would not be what it is today, which is now ruled by a terrorist network with the Taliban. It wouldn't have happened because we had a condition based agreement uh, to actually get out of there, something we had put together. The reason I wanted to get out of Afghanistan, and so did President Trump before he became president going forward, was I said, you know, the problem we have, Mr. President, and this is my recommendation to you, and this is my advice, and we happen to agree on it. Because as long as we're mired in the Middle East and we're fixated on Afghanistan, we can't look to the flanks and look for greater enemies, the Russians and the Chinese. And, and we just cannot intellectually get to that moment and force ourselves to think our adversaries that are growing out there. And I was told by a lot of people, from people in the military, I said, no, no, you're wrong. I said, well, I've got, one, I, I've got one key point, Alan, that I'll make to everybody. It's really clear. I said, okay, I'll listen to your argument. But tell me why today that the Russians and the Chinese have hypersonic missile batteries that are active today. Why is that important? The hypersonic missile will probably change the battlefield of the future. They just report that they won that circle the globe. These hypersonic missiles travel at Mach 5 or higher. What that means to the average person listening, that this missile flies, at two miles a second or faster. You have no defense on them right now, none. And you can tip them with uh, nuclear weapons or conventional warheads as well. Our hypersonic missiles are zero. We're still in the research and development phase because we were not thinking strategically about the future and about the enemies. And I tell people, that's just a classic example of how we got to a bad position because we were not thinking of the future like we should have been thinking of the future. And we had an ability to get out of Afghanistan through the Doha agreement uh, that we signed on 29 February, 2020. Uh, and four days later, the president of the United States, Donald Trump, picked up the phone and I was in the Oval Office when he did it. And he talked to the chief Taliban negotiator, a guy named Mullah Bar- Baragher, who was their senior guy, that we got out of a Pakistan prison to make sure he was part of the negotiations. And the president made it very clear to Baragher what would happen if they didn't follow through on the conditions-based agreement. And I remember sitting there on a the couch in the Oval. He basically told him, I know where you live, I'll come find you, and I'll kill all of you if, you if you don't follow through with this agreement. And the final agreement was designed to be a new coalition-based government, a government of national reconciliation, that brought together the Uzbeks and the Tajiks and the Pashtun, basically combining the Ghani government with the Taliban government, Backed by U.S. military force going forward to make sure they all stayed in their lanes, and hopefully over time they would come up with some type of decent agreement. Well, when Biden didn't listen to what we told them, came up with a date certain, and now the Taliban run the, run the country, and all of those agreements, those conditions that we set in place with the Taliban are no more. Part of that was they would not support any military or terrorist attack at all. Coming from their territory. They would disown Al Qaeda. All of that is now gone. And they, that was because Biden just didn't listen. They didn't care about what his general said. But we had a plan in place, it was conditions based. And I tell people look, okay, you may not say, oh, I don't agree with you. Fine. It's public record. Go to the Department of State website, pull up the Doha agreement, see what it says on the first page, read it, and you tell me if we were wrong. Because if we had followed that agreement, backed by US military force, we would have been fine. And we told Barack that we would leave 2,500 U.S. troops in place, over 3,000 paramilitaries supported by the CIA, 5,000 NATO allies. We would hold a Bagram air base and all the air power until this agreement was satisfied and the conditions met. never happened. And, and Pompeo was said that, former Secretary of State. Vice President Pence has said that. Robert O'Brien, the former national security, had said said the same thing. John Rockliffe, the former director of national intelligence, all of them have said exactly the same thing. If you just followed the plan, you wouldn't know where you're at today. we built up our military, increased defense budgets, and veterans, and funded the modernization of our entire nuclear trial. We pushed and plotted our NATO allies to do more for their own defense. As agreed in the 2014 Wales Declaration, we challenged China, economically and politically. We held the first U.S.-North Korea summit in great indoor military defenses in the Korean Peninsula. We withdrew from the Flawed Iran deal, which is negotiated, allowed for the expiration of all sanctions and restrictions on Iran, while not allowing and restricting inspections and other measures to prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons. We created a new space force and revitalized NASA. We sent NASA astronauts into space from the American soil for the first time in nine years. You know, you played
1: a crucial role in changing American foreign policy from a globalist perspective to an America first perspective. There's a lot of pushback and um, from within the bureaucracies of the United States, as well as think tanks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the president, I think, showed, and I think the Abraham Accords are a great example of that, that if you take another tactic, you can in fact help both your friend Israel and your other allies in the Arab world, but also help the United States. In those battles um, that took place, and I use that term, and I don't use it lightly, within the bureaucracy, You went head-to-head with General Mattis, who was Secretary of Defense, uh, General McMaster. You disagreed with the way they approached the formulation of American foreign policy. Can you talk how you differed from them and how entrenched this attitude was that America first is not for America?
0: It's a great question, Alan, because when I came in there, it's sort of like, okay, you guys are kind of globalist people, and that's shorthand, and we're the American first people. And Neither one of them had the unique perspective I did, which was going through the 2015-16 campaign with the president flying on what we affectionately called Force One, sitting on a lockdown with those slides going forward. And I said one time, we were sitting talking, I said, you know, there's a, a pretty darn good professor. My name is Paul Kennedy from Yale wrote a book, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. And I said, believe it or not, Mr. President, you are following exactly what what he talks about. He said, well, explain it to me. He said, he says that the rise and fall of great powers, great powers fall because of what is called strategic overreach. In other words, they, they are funding so much external to their countries, their countries can't afford it, and they fail. And all the great nations that has happened to, you have to be very cautious about the use of military force and physical force and economic force external to our nation, if, if our nation's not set and you spend money elsewhere, then your nation will fall because you haven't afford, you haven't protected your own nation. That comes back to America first, protect first, go by the three first three words of the Constitution, we the people. And once you're satisfied and you're set in that regard, then you can help everybody else out there in the world. And Mesh didn't see that. Master didn't see it either. They wanted to go out there and kind of support everybody and everything. And I said, you guys are wrong. I said, you know, we owe it to the people, not in Washington, D.C., but we owe it to the people in Washington, Kansas, that we need to have a strong nation economically and politically and militarily. And then we can do good for everybody else in the world. The president's economic agenda, including tax cuts and slashed regulatory red tape, gave our country its strongest economy since World War II with record low unemployment until we hit the pandemic. To respond to the pandemic, we initiated a private-public partnership, Operation Warp Speed, that delivered three new vaccines to the American people in historic record time. And I'll drop over to the COVID crisis, this really makes it pretty clear. When we started working coronavirus, we worked very hard to get vaccines going forward, and we developed not one, not two, but three vaccines in record time. And I was part of the coronavirus task force with Vice President Pence, sat through every single meeting, every single day with what we were doing. And we created those three vaccines in a historic time. No other nation has done that. In fact, the top four vaccines, three of them are American, and the fourth one, AstraZeneca, is the British vaccine, and then you've got Sinovac, which is a Chinese vaccine that nobody wants. And the other vaccine is Sputnik, which is the Russian vaccine that nobody wants. But we refused to send any of those vaccines external to the United States. We were convinced Americans were taken care of. And, and that was our way of saying, look, the first people we protect are Americans, and then we will go from there. And there was a lot of people criticized us for that. They said, oh, you, you need to send this out globally. And the president of the United States said, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, when we did, when developed monoclonal antibodies, uh, remdesivir was one of them. We said, we're not going to send that out of the country either, even though we had 90% of the supplies. We're not doing that. There's other countries out there that, that are not vaccinated like we are or have the capability to vaccinate because they don't have the vaccines. But there was a classic case of the President of the United States saying, I'm going to take care of America first. And he would do that all of the time. The first question he always had, and it was a very transactional-based discussion, is, is what is best for Americans first? That's the primary goal. Once you operate from there, the thing falls into place. But if it's not for America, then it's not good. then we're not going to do it at all. And, and I used to go through that, and I used to push back hard on McMaster like, and Harold and Mattis They were a big believer. Well, hold hands, global community, you know, sing Kumbaya. And I said, nope, you're you misreading Donald J. Trump. It's Americans first.
1: <laughs> you know, uh, you quote, um, I guess you encapsulate um, what the establishment's response especially on the foreign policy side with this um, beautiful uh, statement, they, they will always tell you that the solution to the problem that you have is more troops, more time, and more trust than us, (laughs) and we'll get it. And somehow it's going to strengthen itself out, which is not the case. Um, And uh, here at Secure America Now, we have been strong supporters of the president. We are also supporters of, uh, of America first, nationalism. And, um, and I'm glad that you brought up the Corona vaccine and the administration's unbelievable accomplishments in that area. Throughout the administration, you have a chapter on this even before he got sworn in as president, you had uh, the mantra from the media, as well as from Democrats, of Russia, Russia, Russia. You write about what might be the biggest mistake um, in that particular area, which was the recusal of the attorney general's session from the Russian investigation. Can you speak to that?
0: It's important to remember, Alan, that I, that I went to campaign with the president. I was one of the mm-hmm. very few that went through it totally with him. And I remember I was called to the Mueller Commission. Um, I, I was the first one out of the White House I got called. I think uh, Ty Cobb, who was the lawyer at the time, said, "You know, throw Kellogg in front of him and see what happens first. So I went over there, and I, by the way, I went without a lawyer, which Trump later said to me, "You did what?" I said, <laughs> well, I, "You know, you know." And I said, "I, I said no." I said, and I told him when I went in there, I said. I'm going to tell you the truth exactly as I see it. You may not like what I'm going to tell you, but I don't need a lawyer because my dad once told me, you know, if you tell the truth, you only have to remember one story. So I I went in there. The first time I sat down, they started talking about the Russians. I said, you know, here's why you guys have got it all wrong. And I said, this to the president. he he got a little bit aggravated. Then he started laughing. I said, you know, when we went over in the campaign and you said with the Russian potential Russian influence, I said there was about 80 of us total. When you know, Hillary Clinton had over 300 in New York alone, I said we had trouble at the very start colluding among ourselves. Let alone colluding with the Russians or anybody else. We didn't collude with the Russians, and I would have known it. And I said and it, it's a bogus story. It's a it's a BS story. And you're going down the right, wrong path. And I really pushed back on them when I was sitting there in front of these, who have new lawyers and FBI agents that were there at the time. And I said. You've got this all wrong. And I said, and I, and I said, by the way, you ambushed Mike Flynn. And they kind of looked at me and said, look, I was part of the transition team too. When you're part of the presidential transition team, you're given a government computer, a government phone, you're in government space, you're authorized to talk to foreign entities. I talked to the Russians and I talked to everybody else as well. Mike's problem was he got scared and he's. He said he didn't talk to the Russians when, in fact, he had. I said, "Yeah, I talked to him. I talked to everybody. That was my job when I was, was part of the transition." And and so this whole thing was a, a bogus story. It was supported by a bogus Michael Steele, CA, which was baloney. And I think people didn't. They wanted to impeach Donald Trump before he was even president, and they, it was a convenient way of explaining away a bad loss. Let's just blame the Russians. Uh, and and that really impacted our work later on trying to, you know, I'm not saying that Putin's a guy I want to sit down and have a beer with. But the president really believed, President Trump, that if you talk to people and keep the dialogue going, there's less chance of getting shot at than if you sit down and talk. He proved that with Kim Jong-un, and he proved that with Putin and everybody else. And and I think Putin respected going forward. Now, I don't think he respects Biden, but that was a that was a totally bogus... Effort, And I think when Jeff Sessions basically pushed back and said, no, we're not going to have a special prosecutor, we don't need one. And Jeff knew better because Sessions, even though he was senator, was part of the transition team and he saw what we did. And I would tell him repeatedly, senator, there's nothing there and you know it and I know it. And then when we became attorney general and he didn't recuse himself. I said it was a massive mistake. He should have looked over and said, no. I was there. You weren't. I know what happened. You don't. It didn't happen. And we're not going to have a special prosecutor. What's the next subject? And I think that would have prevented a lot of the issues that we had uh, in your one, two, and three.
1: One of the more dramatic parts of your book is actually about nine eleven, the attacks on the United States, specifically the attack on the Pentagon. In retelling that story, you talk about um, the order that was given, I guess, by Vice President Cheney at the time that your weapons are free over Washington. Can, can you recount that story and explain what that order means?
0: Sure. Yeah, I was, in 9-11, I was in the Pentagon. I was the, it was called the J-6, I was Director for Command and Control. And we were watching what was going on because at the time the Russians had a major exercise going on at the same time. And once we found Secretary Rumsfeld, who was outside the building, we had to get him back in the building, you and the president, you need to be here, commanding this thing, because the president was down in Florida, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs was halfway across the Atlantic heading to England, and we had to turn him around. But we were sitting in there going through this very, which I thought was a great day for America, in the sense everybody was very calm and collected, it was tragically what happened with the terrorist attack, but how we can... Conducted ourselves was pretty darn good. But at the time this was going on, we had already had three hits for the Pentagon with the World Trade uh, Towers. And, we, and 93 had just gone into the, the ground in Shanksville, thanks to the courageous efforts of the people on board. But at the time, there were some other aircraft squawking, hijack And at the time, once you squawk, hijack as an airliner, you can't de squawk, and it's there. And, so, and some people had panic they squawk. So we had a bunch of airliners that we saw squawking and hijack, and we weren't sure what was going on. So Cheney was in what's called the P.O.C., which is the presidential bunker underneath the White House, and the president was down south. And we had you know, kind of told the Russians what we were doing, and they immediately would come slowing their exercise down. But I was sitting there listening along with Dick Myers, the vice chairman in Mumsfeld, and Cheney had been on the phone with both Condoleezza Rice and our security advisor and president. And he said to Rumsfeld, he said, Mr. Secretary, you are weapons free over Washington. Now, most people would go, what does that mean? In military jargon, that meant that we could shoot anything down that was flying. He gave permission for our fighters to shoot down airliners with people on board. And those, the message was very clear. We're not going to let another aircraft run into any of our buildings or monument White House or the capital, or anything else out there. We were going to shoot them down if necessary. First airplanes we put in the air were actually armed. And published reports by the pilots, the, both, the, both the pilots had lifted off of Andrews, flying F-16s, they had made a decision that if necessary, they were going to ram their jets into an airliner if they saw one attacking the capital. And it took us a while to get the fighters from flying air forces in Virginia that were armed. That day, if you were flying a commercial airliner and you were going to attack some, one of the, uh, uh, principal locations in the United States, you were going to get shot down, and I've never heard that made, and it was it really made it to me quite stark uh, what the decision was, and we were going to protect America at all costs, and if that meant shooting down an airliner with America, then we were going to do it.
1: Uh, I happened to be on a British air flight that was about to take off from Kennedy Airport in New York, and we were on the runway. And we actually saw the black smoke come out of the World Trade Center. But we had no idea what had occurred. Nobody did. And um, it was truly a harrowing experience. You You begin your book with a quote from Winston Churchill. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. And then uh, your last line in the book is, I believe the hardest battles are yet in front of us. And I, for one, am ready. Well, I got to tell you, most Americans, most people who are part of Secure America now feel that the world is gone crazy. <laughs> and that there are so many battles before us, but we also feel that Americans don't count out the American people. And uh, your message with your last line and and with the first one gives encouragement to me, and I'm sure it will to others. Uh, I do want to thank you for taking the time, speaking with us, and I do highly, highly recommend War by other means by General Keith Kellogg and thank you for your service,
0: Alan. Thank you for having me and spend some time with you and and hopefully uh, some people will uh, like what I said and hopefully enjoy the book. It's a true account of what happened I'm sure they will. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Code Red Podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date and be the first to hear about our future podcast. You can also find and subscribe to the Code Red Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube.